This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Since our last program, there's been a major change in America, a new president, and one as vastly different from the one who came before as one could possibly imagine, whichever side you're on. The Democrats, of course, also through the tiebreaker vote of the new vice president, Kamala Harris, have taken control of the Senate and therefore Congress. Watching these developments is CBS chief Washington correspondent and host of the podcast, The Takeout, Major Garrett. Major, let's start with now former President Trump. Just a couple of weeks ago, the smart money was that he was going to control the GOP for years to come, might even run again in 2024. And now, though some people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are staying faithful, the Capitol riot seems to have changed things. Some Republicans thinking he went too far and some of his biggest fans, such as the Proud Boys, thinking he didn't go far enough. Well, yes, this is what happens when you play with constitutional fire and rhetorical fire and propagate lies for weeks on a misbegotten quest to overturn an election you fairly lost. That's what comes with uh, politics in this country, thankfully. Uh, You suffer consequences for making such grotesque miscalculations and for, as I said, playing with fire that you had to know would burn out of control. And if you didn't know, you didn't understand that which you had been on top of for four years as president of the United States. And I think Donald Trump as president knew exactly what he was playing with. And there is certainly ample evidence for those of us who were able to reconstruct his day inside the White House on January 6th, that for a certain amount of time, we don't know exactly how long, he was not at all aggrieved by the assault on the Capitol. And that in itself and his lack of action to check on the whereabouts and the health and safety of his own vice president, of members of Congress. Basically, his unwillingness to intervene in something that was running amok, out of control, full of fanaticism, rage, violence, and the like, speaks volumes about his attitude about the election, the Constitution, and federal law. And when you are so demonstrably on the wrong side of all of that, yes, history will judge you harshly. Politics will turn away from you. You will have fewer friends and less influence as it should be. 
Well, let's move to President Biden. As expected, he moved quickly, aided by the fact that President Trump ruled mostly by executive order and not legislation. What are some of the things that he's already done? Well, it's a very long list, but let's just start at the top, dealing with the pandemic, rejoining the World Health Organization. Does that change things in America? No, but it it reconnects the United States to the World Health Organization that's trying to deal with this global pandemic. Also, a series of executive orders about a mask mandate, not everywhere in America, but on federal property and when it's part of interstate commerce that is influenced by the federal government. That doesn't do everything. It's not nearly as far reaching as some Republicans have alleged, but it models a different kind of behavior. And the White House itself, vastly more stringent protocols on mask wearing, on testing for everyone who is in the building working as a journalist or otherwise, and reversing uh, the president's approach on the Keystone XL pipeline. He had by executive order greenlit that. President Biden is reversing that. There are unions and those in the energy industry who believe that's a misguided maneuver that will cost jobs, but it is a way to send a signal about the emphasis on dealing with those things that are, from the administration's perspective, the Biden administration's perspective, injurious to the environment, and sending an early signal that carbon footprints are going to be taken seriously and viewed skeptically by the incoming administration. Uh, That's just the beginning. There's a lot of other things coming in the first 10 days. And Gil, to your point, One of the things we have to wrap our minds around as Americans is if we want things that are durable, if we want things that will last, legislation is the way to achieve it. And encouraging Congress to find ways to legislate as opposed to presidents ruling by executive order and executive fiat is the way to go. Well, let's take a look at that situation because, yes, he does control Congress now, but in the Senate, of course, it's narrow. COVID and the economy, because they're inextricably intertwined, seem to be job one. We're talking a lot of money. President, to get that through as pure legislation, would need to avoid a filibuster, which means some parts of this plan wouldn't make it. Democrats could pass much of it through a reconciliation bill that would avoid needing to get 60 votes, but apparently Biden wants to see if he can get a bipartisan bill through and make it some kind of down payment on unity. What, what are his chances? They're probably slim. And I think the Biden White House knows that they're slim, but they at least want to give it an effort. And one of the interesting questions before the Biden White House is, how long do you wait before you know what you already know? Meaning, are you going to find 10 Republicans to get you over that 60 vote threshold? Probably not. And how long do you wait to try to find that that number, which is probably elusive? And the question is answered this way. Well, what do I think the country expects from me when I talk about unity and bipartisanship? Or do they just expect results? My long time serving in Washington uh, and covering Washington and covering lots of different approaches to budget, taxes, spending, rescue plans, stimulus and the like is the country will give a nod to you if you are bipartisan. But it'll be much more happy if you deliver something that changes their lives for the better and visibly so. And if you believe that that's what this package will do, and if you're the Biden White House and you know that it's not going to be possible to get those 10 Republican votes, then you go down the path of reconciliation and partisanship faster than later or sooner rather than later. One of the things that the president is trying to do is you know, get the money right away, not just for the economy, but to use the Defense Production Act um, to get 
uh, more N95 masks, more isolation gowns, more gloves, more swabs needed for tests to get this thing going and to use the DPA to accelerate the production of syringes and raw materials used in vaccines and all of that. That all said, when they got in, they found the distribution problems that have been reported around the country are much worse than they thought. Apparently, the Pentagon's Tiberius system to distribute vaccine is a mess. Nobody really knows how much vaccine is available or where is it going. So that is a huge challenge. And one thing I would say that you have to look at as you apprise whatever the, the Trump administration did or didn't accomplish with the vaccine, uh, creating it was only the first step. And it took so much pride, justifiable Gil, in the creation, but misunderstanding and misapplying the massive task of distributing it. Because creating it, yes, is really, really super important. You can't distribute that which you have not created. But once you've created it, you must figure out how to distribute it. And simply telling the states, we're going to drop it at your metaphorical front door and you take care of it from there isn't a way to get this done and get this done rapidly and meet expectations. And the one thing that is very different about this administration coming in They've put a number out there. It's a big, bold number, 100 million in 100 days. If they don't meet that or fall far short of that, they'll also be judged harshly. But they at least have given the country a metric, something to reach for, something to aspire to, and something to tell everyone in between where we are now and where they're trying to get in the distribution channel how to measure themselves as they approach that 100 million goal. The split in the Democratic Party between progressives and moderates does not seem to be as severe right now as many expected it months ago, although we'll see. Bernie Sanders, of course, is going to be chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, and we'll see what that brings. But still, there are some splits initially. President Biden has talked about student loans, extending the moratorium and payback and interest to September talking about forgiving $10,000. Schumer, so we're not even talking about the progressive end of the party. Uh, Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, and other Democrats want that to be $50,000. There are some splits here. It'll be interesting to see whether Biden will hold the power or whether he'll have to negotiate on a lot of issues with Democrats. Well, that's right, because you can't, even if you have a reconciliation package, which we discussed a, a moment ago, which does sound a little bit weedy, but it's super important to whether or not this happens or doesn't happen. Well, you got to have all your Democrats together. <laughs> you got to have all your Democrats together to even give you a chance to do it the hard way. So these things need to be sorted out. And it's going to be an ongoing conversation. Look, the progressive wing of the party laid everything on the line to defeat Donald Trump and to elect Joe Biden. That's how the party found so many more votes and was able to persuade so many people to put the 81 million votes or 81 and a half million votes behind Joe Biden. A substantial number more than Hillary Clinton attracted because the party was much more divided and progressives sat on the bench a little bit in, in 2016, much to their subsequent regret. Well, they don't have those regrets anymore. They have people in power. The Biden cabinet, I think, is pretty balanced, not only from a diversity perspective, how you view it and the backgrounds, but also from the various wings of the Democratic Party. And that is a good early start. I've heard lots of progressives say, you know, we're kind of surprised. It's pretty good. Better than we actually thought. We, this would be if you were to ask us, let's say, in the summertime. So they're off to a good start. They're always points of division. Maybe division is too strong a word. Maybe separation that is like, well, we prefer this, but we understand that. I think for at least a year, Gil, at least a year, among Democrats, they will say and feel every day, whatever this is and whatever our disagreements, this is so much better than where we were a year or two years ago. And we've got to take that on board. Thank you, Major, for your coverage and your insights. As always, CBS Chief Washington Correspondent and host of the podcast, The Takeout, Major Garrett. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network.
Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. A new president and the change of party control in the Senate may mean changes for the economy that will directly affect you. So what's ahead? With us is Jill Schlesinger, the business analyst for CBS News, whose podcast Jill on Money and whose latest book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, help guide you through the economy. And Jill, let's start with stimulus checks, which there's a big debate about. There's an argument, and it's not the usual liberal conservative one either, about whether this gets money to the people who need it, Matt, rather than, say, more unemployment checks would. Yeah, I mean, there's a point to that. I mean, obviously, money that goes into the hands of people who make less than $75,000 individually, 150000 as a couple, um, could really mean something different to each person who receives it. If you're lucky enough to still have your job, you might take that $1,400 check and you might pop it in the bank or pay down your student loan or save it in some other way. Um, but the idea here is that perhaps if we just put more money into the economy, it will get spent. I think that the increase of the supplemental federal unemployment benefit from 300 a week, which was voted on in December, now 400 a week doesn't seem like a lot. But I think the more important aspect of that is that the under the Biden plan, that extra federal benefit would run through the end of September. And, you know, the December plan only ran through the middle of March. And clearly we are going to have more problems in the economy that last beyond the first couple of weeks of March. So, you know, None of these plans is perfect. And so to some extent, there are promises that have been made across the various states and and congressional races. And I think that it probably just makes sense to get money out as quickly as possible because the economy is certainly showing signs of slowdown in the early days here of 2021. We got some insights from the confirmation hearing for Biden's choice of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She talked about a number of things during her confirmation hearing, including raising refundable child tax credits to $3,000 a year. Under the current system, those credits, which you know become cash payments for people with low taxable incomes, get paid out annually and back paid retrospectively. She said she would ask the IRS to look into sending poor families a monthly check. I mean, if something like that would happen, that would mean a big difference to a lot of people. Absolutely. You know, and that child independent care tax credit, it would be increased um, not just to 3000 it would be 3600 for every child under the age of six. And it would also be fully refundable. That means that even if you don't owe taxes, you still get the money. I think that alongside the idea of increasing the availability of the earned income tax credit for this year, for 2021, just by pushing up the income limit by which you qualify for that, that this is an effort by the administration to say, we know that households making less than $40,000 a year have been disproportionately impacted by COVID financially. And we want to push more money into their hands as quickly and efficiently as we can. Biden has talked about raising corporate taxes, not back to where they originally were before Trump's cuts up at 35 percent, but from 20 to 28 percent, which he says he would use to fund things that corporations actually do rely on, like infrastructure. But Yellen seemed to indicate that with all the money needed to bring back the economy with COVID right now, Raising corporate taxes is really on a back, 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 back burner. Yeah, I don't think this is happening anytime soon because um, I think most economists would agree raising taxes before your economy has recovered from a recession is not a good idea. Um, I I think that those aspirational um, 
those those sort of bullet points of the second phase of uh, the Biden administration. We'll see if they ever happen. I think what's really clear is that in this $1.9 trillion, there are some things that are directly COVID related. There are a few things that are not, but certainly address the idea that lower income Americans are suffering much more so than even middle Americans. I think that this 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 proposal really comes after the experience of 2009, where the Obama administration thought that it would have not just one chance at stimulus, but maybe two chances. And so the bill that first passed was the one that really was the only bill. And looking back on it, many economists believe that that was not enough money spent and it made the recovery from the recession last much longer than it needed to. So this is one of those sort of big, you know, go big or go home because we may not get another chance at this. Speaking of, of, you know, bringing back the economy and jobs, small companies employ about half of America's non-government workers and 400,000 of them have permanently gone out of business since the pandemic started. Uh, President Biden's called for $15 billion in direct grants to at least a million of these hardest hit small businesses. That comes to around $15,000 a recipient. Uh, is that going to be enough to bring some of these businesses back or at least develop new ones to replace them? You know, I have um, had conversations with economists about this. This is actually one part of the the plan that there you see a real, real worry in that we may be pushing money into the hands of small businesses that are not going to survive anyway. So then the question is, why are we doing this? And, you know, one economist put it very interesting, you know, put it to me in an interesting way. He said, look, I'm not saying we should be so brutalistic about this, that, you know, we shouldn't help people. But some of these businesses are not going to make it. And what we should really be doing is focusing on the people who are impacted by that business not making it, not trying to, you know, create this this plan where we we throw money into a business that's going to fail ultimately anyway. And I thought that what he said was kind of interesting. You know, you have to be very careful that, you know, that what you think you're building is a bridge to some other place and what you may be building is a very short pier and the business is going to fail anyway. So I think that there are two sides to that equation as someone who owned a small business at one time. It's a, it's a terrible thing to say, but I do think that there, this may not be the most effective way to help small businesses, some of which are just not going to survive. One of the things that came up that was interesting in the Yellen confirmation hearing was China. It doesn't sound like the Biden administration is going to be as harsh as Trump but she was very focused on some specific areas where apparently the Biden administration does plan to try and play hardball with China, intellectual patents, creating trade barriers, forcing when China forces companies that invest in China to transfer their technology. Are these things that will impact the American consumer in any way? Well, I presume so. I mean, look, the effect of the trade war was already being felt um, in, in many respects, the some of the erratic trade decisions of the Trump administration probably restrained the economy in many ways. And, you know, you may have seen a much stronger growth in 2019 if we had seen less of the shenanigans and the the surprise factor. Now, that said, there are problems with China. 
and there have to be better trade practices. So I think that the Biden administration understands that they want to be tough. Um, they're not unwinding any of the um, the major Trump policies out of the gate. And I think they're trying to maintain a posture that's crystal clear with the Chinese that um, it may be a new regime, but don't expect things to go back to the way they were. Final question is something that has an impact on families trying to plan mortgage rates. There are some insane rates out there right now. I've even seen 1.99%. I don't know what kind of credit you need to get that, but still they're being advertised. Looking at what Biden wants to do and all and looking at vaccines coming in and where we are in the economy, are interest rates going anywhere in the near term? No. <laughs> How about that? That's easy. Um, Jay Powell has made that crystal clear um, that the interest rates are not going anywhere. I would be very careful if I were the Biden administration. Not that anyone's asking me, but let me just throw my two cents in. There is some notion that perhaps the Biden administration might be interested in providing some help for first time homeowners to go out there and buy a house. And you know, maybe it's $10,000 towards a house. Um, I think that's a little dangerous. I feel like we've been here before. There's a lot of people who should be actually renting and not buying. And I think that that's something that, that as a country, we have to stop making it the, we can't make it the goal. This is, I'm going to put my personal finance hat on for a second and make the tax code favor buying versus renting. And I think that's a real mistake. And I think that people get into big trouble when they reach to buy a home, you know, with, you know, an extra, some extra money down. And for what They're, they may be actually better off renting. And I think the tax code, which does provide some benefit for, um, a deduction for mortgage interest and property taxes, even though they're capped now, I still think that that's something that we need to really think through as a nation because it leads people to make very bad decisions, all with the idea that, gosh, I really want to own a home. And it may not actually be the the best idea for mo for many Americans. We will have a lot of conversations over this coming year. Jill Schlesinger is, of course, the CBS News business analyst. She has a podcast, Jill on Money. And again, her latest book is Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, which apparently occasionally is buy a home. Jill, thank you so much for being with us. <laughs> Take care. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. 
So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. One of the leftover matters from the years of President Trump is the conspiracy belief spread by Q, the nexus of what became known as QAnon, thought by many Americans to be a source deep within the Trump administration with secret knowledge, but believed by many who investigated it to be a disabled man who until recently lived on a pig farm in the Philippines and had taken control of the message board 8chan. The story seemed at first blush or even 11th blush to be wholly unbelievable. Pedophile politicians eating children in the non-existent basements of pizza parlors. But despite that, they gained traction with millions of people. And here to talk about how that all came to be is Jack Bradish, who is an associate professor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers School of Communication and Information and the author of Conspiracy Panics. You think that QAnon has underpinnings that are more than political. Can you tell me about that? Well, sure. Uh, the I think the, the QAnon is a movement uh, that has uh, kind of sources in longer standing narratives that are religious and spiritual uh, in, in their foundations. I mean, the kinds of grand, almost cosmological battles between good and evil. Um, they call their opponents uh, Satanists. Um, so there, there's, a, there's a longer standing. So the political component of this um, is important, but they've invested a kind of uh, religious fervor into um, the, their, their, their putative leader, uh, Donald Trump, but also in the way they form their community and their movement is really kind of more religious than, uh, than political, even though it has this also this martial or militant um, uh, aspect to it as well. I guess one of the religious aspects of it that gave it a veneer of respectability at first was a focus on child sex trafficking. That, of course, is a real thing, although ironically, a lot of that happens on the same kind of message boards used to spread political conspiracies. When we get down to it, I mean, saving the children is 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 really not the main focus of QAnon. That's a kind of a, a pathway or an instrument um, to get at the real problem for them, which is this global cabal, um, and to defeat this, um, uh, you know, this grand enemy. Why is there a need for people to believe these kind of things? And it's not just, as some people are saying, a right-wing thing. People on the left in the Bush years were spreading the same kind of stuff about the World Trade Center, saying it was brought down by the Bush White House as a pretext to start a war with Iraq. Of course, it's enough not to like Biden or Bush or Trump or the Clintons for pure policy reasons without adding on all of this strangeness. Why do people feel the need to believe these these more potent but seemingly more absurd things? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we have a kind of impoverishment of, of language and understanding how power works sometimes, right? And so people gravitate towards the most kind of um, uh, sometimes salacious, but certainly kind of gripping narratives about, about again, uh, opponents aren't just political adversaries. They're 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 deeply seated moral ones, or they're or you know they they look for evil intent um, uh, in the in the in these places. So I think some of it is is just the kind of you know the, the language that we have to try to understand um, the way politics works 
um, is, is is often oversimplified, um, and so that draws people because it's a it's a compelling story to hear like how easy a solution can be because you've defined a really easy problem. Final thing. One of the things that may kill Q's credibility, besides the fact that uh, he's been fairly silent since the election, is that Donald Trump did not pardon any of the Capitol rioters. And there's blowback in that. A channel on Telegram for the Proud Boys, which is, you know, an all-male extremist group, said that Trump had thrown the Capitol rioters under the bus and he was a shill who will go down as total failure and called QAnon a Bolshevik lie. So what happens now? Do these groups now just kind of disappear the way flying saucer cults do and things like that? Or will that disillusionment now focus on something that is perhaps even more militant because it's divorced from party politics and more dangerous? You're right. Well, great question. I think there's there's a the, the, the broader question of like within this kind of extreme right wing uh, 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 community or milieu, we're seeing these kind of schisms between something like the Proud Boys and QAnon, which have always had an uneasy relationship, or somebody like Alex Jones and, and QAnon, which also is quite hostile at times. So there's that, which is sort of splintering and figuring itself out. Within QAnon itself, we're also seeing a kind of um, a breaking up or a kind of crisis uh, because of the uh, inauguration of Joe Biden means that um, some people have felt a great disappointment, even betrayal um, by this moment. And um, uh, and so there's the so even if Q has sort of stopped posting What's replaced Q is a whole series of what I think of as QAnon influencers and kind of media agitators who have been uh, trying to regroup and reintegrate the QAnon community and to, to keep the faith and keep going. Now, how much they can continue doing that is is a question, um, uh, but it's certainly a, a moment of a kind of self-reckoning within QAnon because now their leader has not done the things that, he, that they've said he's going to do um, by, uh, by January 20th. So it'll be interesting to see how much they follow him uh, into other other formations, be it political parties or kind of movements in exile or something. The story that is worth following, Jack Bradish is an associate professor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers School of Communication and Information and the author of Conspiracy Panics. Jack, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. 400,000 Americans have died of COVID-19 in one year. That's 100,000 more than the number that died in combat in World War II and double that of both sides in combat in the Civil War. But even though the death toll rises daily, there is now hope with a couple of vaccines approved and more on the way. And with that hope, there is also despair. Many Americans haven't been able to get vaccines. Information about where and when to get them has been haphazard and confusing. Many hearing about reactions that some are getting to a second shot are not showing up for it. And the total number of Americans planning, according to polls, on getting vaccinated seems to be way below the numbers needed for anything we can call herd immunity. So where are we? Joining us is vaccine researcher Dr. Peter Hotez, founding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, professor of pediatrics and molecular virology and microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he's also director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development, and also the author of Preventing the Next Pandemic, Vaccine Diplomacy in a Time of Anti-Science. It's good to talk to you again. You know, Last week, we talked to a doctor who said we had a vaccine plan, but we did not have a vaccination plan. Is that the way it's playing out? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's we're now realizing Operation Warp Speed is was first and foremost a development program, and to take the decade or so of COVID nineteen research, coronavirus research, and that identified the spike protein as the soft target of the virus, and come up with ways to deliver the spike protein by working with the pharma companies, and and that from that standpoint, I think it was very successful. Um, the problem was, I think, you know, when you heard about the four-star military general on top of that, there was this, I think a lot of the American people thought that that meant bringing in the military and the National Guard, and there was a plan to also deliver the vaccinations. And it turns out that was never the case. By logistics, it meant putting the boxes in the back of the FedEx trucks and the UPS trucks, making certain they kept cold and there was no temperature incursions, and it was off to the States, and then it was adios. And and so once again, it was this policy of the Trump administration that the states had to be in the lead for everything. And this is why we failed so catastrophically in 2020. And now we're at 400,000 Americans who've lost their lives because the states never had the capacity to mount a COVID-19 response. It's why we missed the entry of the virus coming in from Southern Europe into New York. It's why we never really got diagnostic testing widely disseminated and in use. It's why we missed the entry of the, vir- of the virus into the Southern states in the summer and the Midwestern states in the fall and why we never got genomic sequencing underway. It was just failure after failure. And now this uh, under the current, if we'd kept on with the Trump administration, it would have been along the same lines. We would have puttered along slowly getting vaccinations into people's arms um, as this virus continues to mutate and become more transmissible. So, but at least now the plan is to have some kind of national vaccination strategy in place through a partnership between the federal government and the states. And this has to be the top priority because we're in a race now um, with daily deaths. Well, let's talk about that. President Biden wants to achieve 100 million vaccinations in 100 days. That would be about triple the rate of where we are now. Can we do that? Well, I look at it a little different way. I mean, same, probably the same result, but a little bit different way of thinking about the numbers. We have to vaccinate 240 million people, Americans, by by the end of the summer in order to halt virus transmission, according to our estimates that we did with a group at City University of New York. And if most of the vaccines are two doses, two times, you know, 240 million people, we're looking at half a billion immunizations. We have to do half a billion immunizations between now and the end of the summer. And um, so far, we've vaccinated about 10 to 15 million people, which when you divide by half a billion, you realize is a rounding error. So for all practical purposes, We've not even started yet. We've not even begun our national vaccination program. So the challenge is how do you get from zero to half a billion in or 0.01 to half a billion in a very small period of time? And that is that is the challenge. And I wrote a piece in the Washington Post last week, which kind of outlined the four or five things that I think have to happen in, in order to make that a reality. Yeah, but one of the things that we have to do to get anywhere near that number, besides distribution, which we can get to again in a second, but is to have people willing to be vaccinated. And those numbers still look bad. In fact, uh, Taking a look at uh, some states around the country, we're seeing as many as half, in some places more, of hospital workers declining to be inoculated for COVID-19. Either they want to see the side effects in other workers or they're outright refusing the shots. Uh, 
if they're doing it and they can see the effects of this disease in their emergency departments all the time, you know, how are we doing with the rest of the country? Well, I think some of those, and I, and I know those numbers as well, and I think some of them will get better as they see colleagues and friends and family get vaccinated. So I think unless there's some terrible thing that happens with the vaccinations, I think you know those numbers will start to decrease. We did a, uh, so the emphasis really has to be on vaccinating everyone who wants to get vaccinated, at least for now. I mean, we did a, a, an analysis uh, with a group at Texas A&M University headed by Tim Callahan as a social scientist. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an MD, PhD laboratory investigator, vaccine scientist, but Tim is a social scientist and led this very nice study that was published in uh, social science and medicine. And what was interesting about it, it pretty much came to the same conclusion that an independent study from the Kaiser Family Foundation uh, did. And it came to the same top two groups that are vaccine hesitant or will refuse vaccines. And the first was what we named in our study Trump voters, what the Kaiser Family Foundation called Republicans. And then the second is the African-American community. And both of us found, found the same thing. So those seem to be the two most reluctant groups at at this point. So one of the things I've been doing now is, you know, any conservative news outlet that'll have me, I'll, I'll go on and explain the importance of vaccines. And, and that's been really interesting and, and meaningful to me. And, and also talking, going on African-American radio programs, whether it's here in Houston or nationally, uh, because I'm really worried we've got to get the nation vaccinated. One of the things that we're going through right now is people are reading about allergic reactions to the Moderna vaccine in California. It's a weird story, and I wonder if you have any insight into it, because that same lot of vaccine has been used all across the country and in other parts of California without similar problems. So were they right to suspend vaccinations? Is it more likely there's something wrong with the, the lot of that vaccine or something wrong going on at Petco Park where those vaccinations were given? So I only know what's in the public domain. Uh, I don't have any you know, additional information. And I looked at that and I came to the conclusion that you came to the conclusion. I said, this is weird. There's something weird about this story that doesn't quite hold. And this is the other problem of Operation Warp Speed is the fact that not only by logistics that they mean putting the boxes in the backs of the trucks, the other problem with it um, was there was never a communication strategy. Um, there was never a mechanism for talking to the American people. It was um, they left it to the pharma CEOs, who more often than not were not strong communicators. In some cases, they really muffed it right Be with between the stock trading and dumping and the and the weird phone calls to to investors and that that sort of thing. So they were not good communicators, and it was tone deaf to the fact that we have a very aggressive, powerful, and far-reaching anti-vaccine lobby that dominates the internet. So now we, when you, there's a problem that arises, we don't have a system in place to speak to the American people, tell them what the heck is going on. And that's urgent. We'll have more with Dr. Peter Hotez about the vaccines and the problems with them coming up. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We're talking to Dr. Peter Hotez, who is director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. And one of the things that I haven't really gotten an answer to yet, doctor, is how long these vaccines last. Do, Do we know that yet? Yeah, we don't know. These are especially with the new technology vaccines. We don't know about the durability of protection. Is it three months, three years, thirty years? So total unknown. Again, another reason why we're going to need high-level communication to the American people. So, if we do need to give a third immunization, there's a mechanism for transmitting that information. And most of the physicians in practice, you know, I've been talking to them on grand rounds presentations and Zoom calls. They're not being informed, so they, you know, depend on people like me to tell them. And so this is not adequate either. So people go to their private physicians and they're shrugging their shoulders uh, a lot of the times. You know, people ask me, is it going to be like the flu vaccine where you have to give it every year? And there's a possibility it is, but for a different reason. In the case of the flu vac- uh, flu virus, it undergoes major antigenic shifts. So you have to make a brand new vaccine each year. And there's this carefully orchestrated dance for that purpose. In the case of the COVID-19 vaccines, it may not be because of that. It may be because just that the new technologies don't protect for long, but they may. We just don't know. We don't know, last I heard anyhow, so I'm going to ask you now, whether these vaccines will prevent me from infecting others. The way the phase three studies were done is if you had symptoms and felt sick, you had a list of criteria, you contacted the study coordinator, and then you were tested for COVID. And if you were positive, you counted as a case. So the study design was only to look for interruption of symptomatic infection, prevention of symptomatic infection, or serious illness but it was never set up to look for asymptomatic infection. So that in theory, if you're vaccinated and you're exposed to virus, you might still have the virus in your system and are shedding it in your nose and mouth um, and therefore passing it on. I I think that's probably not going to be the case, but we don't know it yet. So it's going to take us a few more months to figure that out. So for now, if you're vaccinated and you're out in public, you have to act as though you still potentially could be have asymptomatic transmission and shedding virus. Uh, In time, I hope that that won't be necessary, and then the masks can come off. I have a million more questions, Peter, but you know we don't have the time, so I'll ask you one last one. We knew this was coming, didn't we? I mean, besides quoting my friends like Laurie Garrett, who have been saying, you know, with her book *The Coming Plague*, written more than twenty years ago, that there was something we were inadequately preparing for it. I remember you applied for a universal coronavirus vaccine years ago based on just the coronaviruses we were seeing then, and got turned down for it because people were going, ah. You know, what could happen? Well, this happened. I mean, did we know this was coming or something like this? Yeah, I mean, that's why we embarked on a coronavirus vaccine program a decade ago is because we knew these were going to be problematic. And we saw SARS-1 in 2003 and then MERS, and now we've got uh, uh, COVID-19. And guess what? We're going to have COVID-26 and COVID-32. 
So we still will need that universal coronavirus vaccine, and we're still going to need infrastructure to be picking up coronaviruses, just like the infrastructure we have in place for influenza. Dr. Peter Hotez is, among many other things, director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development and author of the book, Preventing the Next Pandemic, Vaccine Diplomacy in a Time of Anti-Science. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive, I'm Gil Gross. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.